about leadership management and how even though it seems like some of our problems are unfixable, we should not give up. I'm Rachel Perkins, aka Pi or Pi Bob. I am into words, operations, cheese, and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And I'm Kendall Miller, and if two weeks ago you told me there was a thing that was going to make coronavirus feel like small beans, I wouldn't have believed you. And uh, Today on the show, we're talking with Anthony Grimes, brand manager at Fairwinds. Kendall. Yeah, well, first of all, welcome, Anthony. Thank you. I do need to make a disclaimer that I work with Anthony. Uh, I don't think that's going to affect much here, but just to get that out in front of that. But let's let's dive right in and tell us about, tell us your path to leadership, management, where you are now, and uh, any of the other things you want to talk about. Well, that's a big question. Uh, some of it, uh, a few years ago, uh, I, I came into work around the community similar to what, during a time that was similar to what we're experiencing today. You know, it was a moment where uh, a black man was killed unjustly in the uh, community of St. Louis. Uh, his name was Mike Brown. I'm from the Denver community. And I remember when Trayvon Martin was murdered, I felt late to the game, not in the sense of like not knowing that it was murder, but in the sense of not knowing what to do. And I remember after that happened, I told myself I wasn't going to be late to the next moment. And when Mike Brown was murdered, immediately there was something in my spirit that wanted to go to the community and just bear witness to um, it being an unjust crime. And I was at church one day and the pastor who is actually from the community, because I don't believe in going somewhere unless there's an invite, but the pastor who is from that community said, they need your help. And he gave an invite to the congregation, if anyone felt so compelled to go to St. Louis, go to Ferguson. And I'm the only one that stood up. So I tried to get some people to come with me and uh, everyone thought I was crazy. If you remember the images, it was the first time we had seen in the last 20 years, uh, media getting pelted with rubber bullets and tear gassed. And it was very much a war zone. And I tried to get friends to come with me and they said, no, nah, that's crazy. I would never go. And I tried to recruit some people and no one wanted to go. So I didn't know anyone in Ferguson. I uh, flew in by myself. I got in touch with a local pastor there by the name of Reverend Tracy Blackman. And uh, she kind of welcomed me into the community and said, we're glad you're here. And I, I joined in some of the uprisings and the nonviolent protest. And really during that time, I was uh, reborn as a person in so many ways. And um, it changed my life. And that became the beginning of a, a, a greater movement in Denver. I came back to Denver, started recruiting more people to come and go back. And eventually some people said yes, and then more people said yes. And so we started doing freedom rides from Denver to St. Louis and back. And it started a movement in our community. That is amazing. Yeah, that's, that is super powerful. Okay. So talk talk a little bit more about some of those things, Anthony, the like before that, 
what kinds of things were you doing professionally? And when you did that, did you quit your job to go do that? How were you making money while you were in Ferguson? <laughs> when, how did you get back into, you know, if, if you quit, I, I don't actually know all the details of this. Yeah. Did you, how did you get another job later? Or were you, were you sponsored by Freedom Riders, the organization for a while? Or just, just talk, give us a little bit of your background of who you are outside of some of this too. Yeah, no, that was, um, that was community work. So it assumes that I was getting paid and so that's like debatable as to whether or not community workers are getting paid. But I was at the time was fortunate enough, fortunate enough to be in a place where I was at a uh, an organization called Mile High Ministries, which basically gave me leeway, leeway to create community projects from scratch and to fundraise for them. And so they became a, a nonprofit arm that allowed me to kind of just play around and experiment with different community impact projects. And so I was working there at the time and didn't have to quit my job necessarily, but they allowed me to pivot towards having the freedom to do that. Mm -hmm. From there um, and through this moment, um, I got a invitation to um, work as a national, I guess the title was director of, um, director of campaigns and strategy for a national organization called the Fellowship of Reconciliation. They're the world's oldest interfaith peace building organization they were founded um, around the time of World War One, actually, and uh, um, several people from def several countries tried to prevent World War One, and uh, obviously they failed. But after the the war started, they said, uh, "Though our countries may be at war, may we never be." And the fellowship was started. Um, the most notable member was uh, Dr. King himself, and other people who were member of this members of this organization, and. Essentially, it was um, a job where I, I led national campaigns on issues from the refugee crisis to education to um, the prison pipeline for the UN um, and, and, and much more. So I've been thankful to have um, professional opportunities that have allowed me to have some kind of flexibility with how my job is expressed. And that's kind of how it came about. I've tried not to make a dime uh, from actual movement itself. And so I don't believe in profiting off of the bodies of people and uh, have tried very hard to keep that separate from my, my actually, uh, my actual livelihood. Mm, okay. I, I have like two directions I want to go in. Like I have a lot of questions about uh, the, the sort of work that you have done as part of the, the fellowship of reconciliation and your thoughts about violence and nonviolence, because I get, my impression is that that, that organization is very much in the sort of nonviolent reconciliation, nonviolent approaches to things. And then also, uh, so I, I, you have a background in communications and I'm really curious about how that, how that works. How do you, <laughs> you can pick which, which way you want to go first. Uh, how, how do you translate what you learned in school about as your as your degree program in communications into campaigns for such big issues? How do you think about how do you get your information? How do you decide what to put forward? So many questions. Yeah. I'm sorry. No. So start where no, you like. It's great. Um, I actually went to school to be a doctor, oh, and yeah. like a I medical took, doctor, uh, a medical doctor, uh -huh. and I took a class of organic chemistry. And decided that wasn't for me. Um, so <laughs> I, I had this uh, this you know in, in undergrad. I think you change your major four or five times on average. So um, there was a professor that wanted me to try out speech communication as a as a program, and it changed my life. Uh, for me, it's at the heart of everything I do. And so 
I've been just fortunate to be able to transverse between different industries and all that. But the thing that remains the same is this aspect of storytelling. Uh, how do you tell a story in a compelling way that moves people to action? And so whether it's been FOR or other places, um, that's kind of the common theme is storytelling. So uh, I think your question was about nonviolence. I don't remember what exactly it oh, was. Yeah. But- I, I just, the first thing that occurred to me when I, uh, when, when you talked about working there is that uh, right now there's a lot of violent action happening and um I'm, you know, what my opinion is isn't really necessarily important, but my opinion is that, you know, you got something's got to happen. You can't, you can't blame people for the things that are going on right now because of the way the world is. Uh, you can't, you can't blame people for rioting is what, you know, basically what I'm saying. This is, this yeah. is a needed action. What else are they, you know, what else are we going to do right now? But at the same time, I'm not a fan of violence. Uh, and your organization was is not a fan of violence. That organization. How how do you keep those two thoughts in your head at the same time? How do you feel about that? How how is that must be very difficult. Dr. King, who I mentioned, was a notable member of the fellowship. And one time he went to Watts, and this was shortly after the Watts riots had started, and he looked around the community. Uh, it was a community that was in flames and mm-hmm. there were, there was smoke all over, um, rioting, as some might say, looting. And the, the whole community was in flames and a young brother came to him and said, Dr. King, Dr. King, we won. And he looks around and says, what do you mean we won? And the kid says, no, we won. And Dr. King said, what do you mean? And he said, at least we've gotten them to see us now. When people participate in collectively as the black community, who is not, by the way, at the heart of the riots, um, Mm -hmm. though some have participated, but when people participate in these actions in in so many ways, it's just um, a, a way in which to be heard and seen. As Dr. King also said, um, rioting is a language of the unheard. Yeah. And so I, I don't have this huge binary between, um, you know, burning down a building versus nonviolent protests. For me, the, the question is, how do we help people to effectively win um, freedom in every area of their lives? Um, and so that's that's kind of how I see it is it's it's less so about morally saying that something's right or wrong and more about having compassion for the why and the person, it, the person themselves. And that's how I look at it. The context context. of it. The context. That's a good point. That's a good word as well. Mm -hmm. Well, so. um, Yeah, we got right into it. I'm I'm sorry, Kendall. Well, uh, there's so many many things to to talk about here that that are interesting to me. I mean, you know, normally this is a a podcast about leadership and, and I have questions about leading in crisis, you know, putting together uh, demonstrations, you know, h- how you organized people, how you led people in the midst of what was going on in Ferguson, how you organized and led people to go from Denver to Ferguson, how you stay yeah. as a leader in the community post that. I mean, talk a little bit about the leadership side. And then, you know, while this is about 
leadership. The title of the podcast is Authority Issues, and I have lots of questions about authority issues uh, in this. But uh, let's start with the leadership side and some of the practical, like what does it actually look like and what's what's good and bad and what's hard about it? Well, Kendall, you work with me, so you know I have zero problems with authority, but uh, <laughs> kidding. But um, none of our guests have ever had problems with authority. <laughs> you would be the first. No, I'm, I'm totally kidding. Literally, every single person that's been on this podcast is like, authority is. I don't like that word. <laughs> Hot potato. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I. I mean, I, I'm used to uh, the, the way I lead. My leadership style is very much about inspiring vision and kind of. Uh, I use this word like collective intelligence. So. I'm not always the 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 most intelligent person in the room, but I think what ha- what I love about um, what I tend to do is is just bring people together who I, I kind of can inspire a vision amongst the crowd to solve a problem. And um, after shortly after Ferguson, we uh, we came back and a number of us drafted a a, a document for the mayor of Denver, and there were a list of demands that we wanted to see in Denver that related to the issues in Ferguson. And uh, we, we drafted this letter and uh, we gave it to the mayor. We didn't immediately hear back from him. So we decided that we were going to do a sit-in in his office. And we uh, we went to his office, about 300 of us, and we just laid down in his office and we refused to leave until we heard about, um, we, we heard directly from him regarding these issues. And they were everything from centering youth in public education to policing, all the stuff we're talking about now as a community back then. Um, the mayor came out of his office finally and spoke to us and committed to the things that we wrote down. And so that began a series of conversations with the mayor, with city leadership, with the police chief at the time, Chief Robert White, and a whole bunch of other stakeholders around these issues in our community. So. Um, that that you know bursted me into kind of the this the heart of these issues in my in my city i was uh invited to give the keynote speech at um our our marade it's uh, a new word in denver a word that we coined in denver rather the it's a combination between a march and a parade and i was invited as the keynote speaker there one year um actually two years in a row and to my surprise, I wake up after some of these things and um, my, 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 my picture was on the front news of, of the paper. That wasn't what it was about, but that was um, affirming to some of the stuff that we as a group had accomplished and that this was a movement that the city began to get behind. So um, that's kind of the genesis of, of a lot of the things that we did in the community as a team. Mm-hmm. And I, well, I'm curious. uh just your general feeling about what's going on right now. Does this feel disheartening that we're still talking about this? Does it feel encouraging that it's getting more attention than normal? Do you have optimism that real change is coming or pessimism that this is just, you know, gonna, gonna entrench people on the side they're already on. Like there's, there's times where I feel really optimistic. Like I'm hearing people talk about systemic racism that I don't think have ever said those words or thought about it ever. And so there's a part of me that wants to be optimistic about it, but I'm curious your perspective in general is, is 
is it optimistic or pessimistic? Does this feel, I mean, it's not fun right now. Everything that's going on is miserable, but does it feel like there's hope at the end of this or not? That's the word for me. It's neither pessimistic or pessimistic or optimistic. It's, it's hopeful. So I believe that things don't change on their own. Pessimism is a cynical viewpoint that believes that the world is um, going in a bad direction, that the glass is half empty. Optimism, on the other hand, is like this blind belief that things will automatically get better. Hope is this third way that's about um, grappling with this idea that um, we could make change that it affects the world that we are in. So everything around me, one of the like foundational ways that I see the world and it relates to leadership is that everything around us was at one point done. It can be undone and redone. We can remake things because nothing is stagnant. And so this moment is is vital for the health of our whole democracy. This is a, you know, America is a big experiment and it's it had never been done before in the history of the world to take all these different people from, and I'm, I'm skipping over slavery <laughs> and I'm skipping over the genocide yeah. of Native American people. But um, to the extent that, America is an experiment to create this nation that is uh, just for all people or aspires to be just for all people. Um, it's a relatively new experiment. And so within that framework, there's a lot of potential for remaking and reshifting and stretching this democracy to include more people. So in that way, it's really exciting that we're having these conversations. I've had more text and DMs and messages about people that saw that original trip to Ferguson. And they said, you know, back then, I didn't understand like what you were doing or what this was about. And some of these are white folks. These are Korean uh, brothers and sisters. And they say, but now I understand. I get it. It's uh, It took this to open my eyes. And so that's a very affirming place to be but we have tons of work to do. And my biggest part right now in the movement is more behind the scenes. And it's just been about elevating the conversation. This is not about police getting a few more body cams. It's not about more accountability after someone is murdered. This is largely about um, rethinking how we do policing in our country, rethinking violence towards black people. And so the task at hand is, is a lot bigger than a lot of people want to admit, but um, with with the right amount of work, with the right amount of listening, with the right amount of uh, um, restructuring of power in the right places, I think we can make a huge difference. That's gonna that's gonna make this world look vastly different in twenty years than it did twenty years before. Yeah, it sounds like you're really you're taking the long view, right? You're yeah. you're very patient. I how I'm I'm sure you do get incredibly frustrated uh, a lot because I, I can't imagine that you're human and, and, and not, uh, and not do that. What, how do you manage your frustration when that happens? The frustration about the world as it's now constructed, it never fully goes away. Right. And I'm, I'm reminded every day that I'm black and that's a unique experience to people of color in this country and in the world, because when you are not black, when you're when you're white, um, there's not a lot of reminders of that when you live in a majority white context, right? Like when I put a Band-Aid on it, that's not flesh colored, 
I'm reminded very quickly that I'm, I'm oh I'm black and when I walk in the store and am looked at uh, more often than not by security, I'm reminded again of my my skin tone. So the frustration never goes away, and a lot of it has to do with taking the long view. I don't I don't know that I'm patient about these issues, but I do understand that they do take a lot of work and a lot of vision to undo. Um, and then I just believe in self care. So I believe in uh, meditation and giving myself time to to center and to breathe and to focus on breathing, to realize that um, we can't react to the forces that are out there. We have to actually respond well and respond deeply. So a lot of what I do in life is about trying to live from the inside out. And I have to model what I wanna see in the world. And um, that comes from me through meditation, through being around friends, through having fun, Take, trying to take my mind off things when I can, uh, even when it's hard. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's that sums it up for me. It sounds like it starts a lot with pragmatism. Like, uh, you know, things are how they are. It's not what anyone should want, um, but they are, they, they can only change slowly. Like they should change fast, but it's not going to happen that way. So might as well orient yourself to that reality and make progress rather than set everything on fire. Although, you know, uh, I'm such a, I'm such a fan of that mental image right now. Um, but yeah, it, it sounds like your, your pragmatism has served you well, as well as just your general sense of I I'm right. I'm right. And positioned in this world in the right way. It sounds like, um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't have we... a question there. <laughs> just, <laughs> I'm just looking for help <laughs> looking for an example, seeing a great example there. I mean, um, Cornell West talks about how uh, some folks are well adjusted to injustice, and I, I, I don't think being adjusted to it's the goal. But I, I do think there's a and so things these things change overnight if we wanted them to, um, and so th- th- there's this constant balance I think between calling out what is and holding hope out for something better, and that's a dynamic tension that I kind of walk with is what is and then what could be and uh those two things never leave and where did you learn that what uh what part of your history that we've been talking about brought you this wisdom oh boy you know i I had a great mother and i i have a great mother her name is uh (laughs) no i didn't mean to say it like that so (laughs) My my mother my mother is, is is the bomb and she she um, raised me well. I come from a family that is uh, is from the south, the, the deep south, and she had eight brothers and sisters and they grew up poor uh, in sweltering poverty in the south and kind of migrated to Denver together. And I just learned a lot of lessons from her growing up. I, I was fortunate to grow up in a great neighborhood in Park Hill where it felt a lot like a village. And it was back when neighborhoods were, uh, I, I guess when we all kind of looked out for each other a little bit more, I, I don't want to talk like I'm too old, I'm a millennial, but at the <laughs> same time, like, I think that's changed from today. Like people used to be outside a lot more and then I've just been fortunate to have great mentors. So as it relates to leadership, I believe, um, you can't teach what you don't know. So I've been very upfront with people that are doing things well 
and doing things in a way that I want to mimic and saying like, can you teach me how you did that? So one of those people uh, back when I was uh, doing more of the, the out front on the ground organizing was a scholar and a man by the name of Cornell, Dr. Cornell West. So I uh, wrote Dr. West a letter one day and asked him if he could mentor me. So to my surprise, he called back and said, I'd love to connect with you and left this long voicemail. I said, oh my God, this is Cornell West. Cool, yeah. And at the time, like he was like one of the top three people in the world that I wanted to meet. So wow. flew out to New York and did, I was, I was Cornell West's special guest one day uh, in New York and Manhattan and went around and traveled with them as he spoke different places. We had a four hour conversation. Uh, I talked about awesome. everything from Anton Chekhov to um, we talked about Tupac Shakur and everything in between and um, learned a lot from him. But he said, you know, when you go back to Denver, there's someone in Denver that you should meet. And he's one of the greatest people I have ever known in my life. And he said his name is Dr. Vincent Harding. So I traveled back to Denver and found Vincent Harding. And at the time he was about 79 years old, 80 years old. And this, this person right here, a lot of people don't know, but he's one of the most influential people in the history of our country. Yeah, he I've never was, heard of him. Uh, yeah, he Google him. He, he was an amazing individual. He was a friend of Dr. King's. He wrote um, his speech beyond Vietnam word for word. And he was just a coworker in the movement. Also just one of the best men I've, I've ever met in my life. And so he became my adopted uncle, someone I grew close to. And one of the like most affirming things I learned from Dr. Harding is at the time, you know, I'm, I'm, I've always been a person that has been involved with a lot of stuff and um, couldn't always, didn't always know how to focus it. And Dr. Harding really affirmed this, this passion in me to do more than one thing and um, just said that I don't have to lock, lock myself in a box that I can, I can, I can carry all those things and do them well, and um, maybe create a new model for how to do those things in in today's world. And so, really thanked him for that. He passed away a few years ago, at five years ago, I think, uh, by now. But uh, one of the most influential people in my life, and I've just been blessed to have really good mentors in my life. That's amazing. So you've. But you've gone and sought out mentors. I mean, there's a lot of people who sort of hope they stumble into them. Uh, and and this, is, this has been something you've been intentional. It's so much so as to get on an airplane and fly to New York to spend a day with someone. Uh, yeah, I, I believe in mentorship. I really do. Um, and I, and it's, it goes both ways. So I've had a lot of great mentors and then I try to pour back. And so I believe uh, in, in just taking my time and giving back to my community and I never want to think that like I've made it to the point that I don't have to reach back and help the next person. So uh, I try to search for mentors. I try to look out after people who maybe view me as a mentor. And I don't even like to call myself a mentor. I just say, I'll be your friend and you can learn. And I'm learning alongside of you. But if there's some things I can help with, just let me know. We're touching on that authority issue thing there, aren't we? (laughs) I think so. so. Yeah, I think that's that that might be the theme of the show a little bit. So uh, let me go ahead and ask you that question right now, since we're talking about it. Um, wh- how do you feel about, what is your relationship with authority? Um, how do you feel about having authority over other people? And how do you feel about people having authority over you? 
I have always been a person who by nature uh, is, is a bit of a rebel. And um, the authority for me is a is an interesting concept. You know, authority is not something that's fixed. We we grant authority usually our social mores uh, create systems of authority, but um, they're not always fair, and they're not always something that are, they shouldn't be something that's stagnant. I think authority should be questioned. Authority should be interrogated. Why do you have authority? Why is this the way? You know, um, if you look at it, if you look at most of the world that we walk around in, um, who said that red lights mean stop and green lights mean go? In Mexico, the driving rules are different. Here in the United States, we drive on the right-hand side of the road. In Europe, it's the left-hand side of the road. So um, there's all these different things that we create and construct that spell out authority and I think part of the problem is when we view that authority as by nature fixed. And so I, I think that um, I'm always questioning you know, who authority is helping, who benefits from it and who doesn't, who's locked out of it. Um, that's one of the big struggles right now. And, and so that's, I, that's my relationship to it. <laughs> well, so, so I want to, I want to dig on that for it's a tenuous. second. There's, yeah. It's dangerous. <laughs> um, I mean, one of the um, interesting things for me is in like like t along those lines when it's fixed. I, I haven't heard it put quite that way. I I would say like um, something similar, but I might describe it differently. But like uh, the examples that I think of in my past are particularly in religious organizations, right? Like a pastor. Uh, manages to be an interesting speaker as a result gathers lots of people into a building on a Sunday and then says, this is my vision. I'm the one in charge. You should submit to me. I am your spiritual authority. You know, I mean, this is the kind of thing that, uh, I mean, drives me crazy about, about, uh, a lot of organized religion in America, but it's, it's literally like it, there's, um, there's just all kinds of problems that come from this that I see abused repeatedly. And now, you know, in, in the, uh, for profit world, right. There's very, very clear goals. This person's in charge because we think this person knows how to make us the most money, right? Full stop. If we think this person's the wrong person to make us that money, we will replace that person. Now the, the objective is at least much, much clearer to me, which I think gets rid of a lot of the problems, interestingly. Now, there's still other problems, you know, and like that fixed authority. I don't know. It's, it's a really interesting word that you use to describe that. I, I just think that's really interesting that a lot of the problems that I have with authority are when it's positional rather than simply earned. And, uh, you know, when somebody walks into a room and speaks with authority, whether they're the person in charge or not is a different situation, right? And uh, and people give authority to that person because they trust that person. They like that person's opinions. They like the way they voice it. They seem like they're not an asshole. You know, those kinds of things are a different dynamic when it's sort of fluid. Um, hmm. I don't know. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, that gets into some of the issue too. I, you know, I'm not an anarchist. Um, uh, if anyone's listening, I'm definitely not an anarchist. I, I do believe in leadership and I do believe in structures that leaders can uh, create to 
help the most amount of people, right? And so, you know, having someone in charge that has a vision to lead a product development or a company, those are good things. Um, I think that today, though, you said the word profit and or you actually said the word who, who can be responsible for making the most money. Mm-hmm. I think part of today, what we're wrestling with as, society, as a society is this idea of profit and redefining mm-hmm. what profit is. And so, um, yeah. you know, companies, it's not, it's no longer good enough just to make the most amount of money possible and to increase their yeah. share. It's the, the challenge now is like, how do we, uh, be profitable in every sense of the word as a comp as a company, how do we profit our employees? How do we profit people? How do we profit our environment and so on and so forth. And so, um, this gets into, some of what we have to like task ourselves with as leaders is to constantly question um, is what I'm doing actually, how's it impacting people? What's my digital footprint? Sorry, I shouldn't say it like that. What's my environmental footprint as a company? Mm -hmm. Um, Sure. When I profit from this, who uh, is that on the back of? Is Is this a pure profit or is this something that is taking away from someone else? And so these are all the questions that, um, would be good to well, ask ourselves as as leaders and as companies form and, and yeah. continue. Well, I want to be clear. I'm not. I'm not condoning some of the the, the processes that I see there. I want. I want to be yeah. very explicit about that. But yeah, I I have heard it's actually a new concept to me. Just a couple of weeks ago, I heard a guy talking about redefining profit, like you're talking about, Anthony. Um, and and who are we taking money from? Like who are we earning money from? Are we getting rich off the backs of the poorest people? Right. Well, this, or this, talk to uh, this or the entire the entire system that is is in place now. This capitalistic system. Yeah. What let's redefine what capital is because right now it's the way things are happening are not it's not working for just about everyone. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about who, but there were a lot of people that made a lot of money in this pandemic, and uh, there were a lot of people who are finding them, finding themselves locked out, and so um, we have to look at things like that if we're going to be honest with ourselves as as a society. And yeah, and, and, and well, I think there's. Sorry, finish your thought. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I interrupted you first, but okay. Um, <laughs> no, but no I, was, I think Anthony was still going. Is what it's I was the saying. first time oh. I've ever seen like three people interrupt each other at the exact same you know, time. This is super interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's important shit. Well, yeah. It seriously is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but okay, let me go ahead and start, and then we can go go around <laughs> to make sure yeah. that everyone gets heard. Uh, the the interesting thing that connects what what you two were talking about and 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 the idea that capitalism isn't necessarily the way that we want to view it is this idea of reframing what profit is, which you both met, both brought up in different ways. I really like that idea. It's it's more than just the dollars and cents bottom line. It's the overall benefit and and the net takeaway. Like because whenever you make a thing in this world, you are taking something from somewhere. Physics tells you that. You don't get nothing, you know, you don't get something out of nothing. So the idea that we would redefine well, we these checks and balances. Money problem. Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll say that companies that are going to really thrive going forward from here in this moment in history, I think are the companies that will think like that more and more. Millennials and younger generation. I don't know what they call the generation after millennials. I forgot Gen what it was. Z? Z? Gen Z, yeah, yeah. Gen, so Gen X. <laughs> <laughs> For as much uh, flack that we get as a generation, 
uh, with with some of that stuff. And oh my god, we're just not as serious as other generations, and yada yada yada. But one I think benefit is that we are very socially conscious overall as a generation, yeah. and, and more and more we're just ousting companies that um, don't think that way. The way that we're talking yeah. about redefining profit is more broad than just money. In general, so I think that the cancel yeah. the cancel culture is not perfect. But I like it. <laughs> I like the thing that it does. You know, when, the okay when, boomer when it's working. Is that what you're... Yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, well, I'm only fifty, Kendall. I'm only fifty. Uh, I'm not uh, saying it to you. I'm saying that's part of the. Um, that, no, well, I mean that's actually exactly what I was going to say, Anthony. Is is I think that a lot of this is generational. That that there's an older generation that says money, full stop, and that the younger generation says no, we need to care about people or it's not and 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 believes that it trickles down to that right like people will vote with their jobs like we're going to build a company of you know uh all terrible people if we don't care about people or all disadvantaged people which is another possibility you build an entire organization off the backs of disadvantaged people who yeah. the only reason they still work there is they can't leave and uh you know, they would the moment they could vote with their feet. And and I definitely think there's a generational aspect there and that there is going to be actually like, and that's part of the communication of the other generation is like, this is actually going to make you more money to care about these things because it's a such a significant thing to us societally and as a generation that people are going to talk about these things. We need to respond appropriately, repeatedly, uh, or people are going to vote with their feet and leave. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I have an uncle who worked for United for like 30 something years. That's the only job he basically had in his adult life. And, and uh, millennials, younger generation, we're changing jobs two or three times a year sometimes. Two years at a job, a company now is just unheard forever. of. <laughs> you know, it's forever. And so like uh, I heard this analogy, when, when, a, when a boomer walks in a party, the question is, where do you work? Uh, what do you do? When a millennial or Generation Z walks in a party, the question is, where do you live? And so we're much more about community and experiences. And uh, yeah, that's that's the real uh, sign of wealth, if you will. And in my generation is it's much more about experience, lived experience, your neighbors, uh, caring and all of that. And I think that's a valuable add to the whole pot of humanity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we are all right. We have well, we have a little well, time left. Oh, go ahead, Kendall. We have a little bit of time left, but I want to ask the second part of that question. We talked in, in, a little bit about uh, authority from one direction, but how do you feel about having authority over other people? Good catch. Yeah, I don't like to use that preposition of over. That's a real. That's a tough preposition with me. Or even when people say, you know, my people. You know, when you have a team and you're leading a team, my people. Mm -hmm. That's a hard one for me. My employees. Um, I like to lead with. Mm -hmm. instead of over so i choose that preposition instead okay. if if we change the word to control are you then comfortable with over okay I, so, so, so so what am i <laughs> it depends on how much you pay me but uh one of one of my Nicely one of my done. mentors <laughs> my astrological <laughs> mentors is uh hannah arendt and so she, you have to look her up as well but she was a humanist philosopher and she said it when we are in dialogue is when we are most human. And so I believe in like having a very dialogical approach when it's um, organizing or at a company. I like to ask a lot of questions. And so 
Um, never want to assume that I am the authority in any area. I always have things to learn. And so that's a value of mine as well is like, let's let's ask more questions of each other. Let's be more patient with coming up with ideas. And then when we have a, a bold idea, absolutely someone should take the charge and run with it. And I, I, I believe a, 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 good, a good mixture between those two things is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like that. That's one of the things I love about being a tech writer is getting to ask a ton of questions about things. It's uh, it is super useful, uh, just in general to have come from that background because there's always more to understand. It depends on yeah, it depends on your goal. It depends on what the output's going to look like. It depends on all sorts of things, but questions are always the beginning. And you have to yeah. learn so much stuff in the course of like a month or a year, even. Yeah, yeah. I love it. it. There's goes always the speed more. Of light. Yeah. Always more. Anyway, Kendall, carry on. Um, okay, well, so, I mean, Anthony, you have a background that I respect in understanding how to interact with movements that are like this, that are taking place in a time, and I suspect are going to at some point pass, right? Uh, like like the momentum will pass. And I'm curious, how. what's your advice to people wanting to be involved? Maybe people in general, maybe specifically white people. I mean, as I was talking to with you about this just the other day saying, I know a lot of white people that just feel paralyzed because anything I say is either too much, uh, too little or tone deaf. And, and, uh, I see people just disappear because that's the only thing they know how to do when they want to show support and they don't know how, or they want to, you know, I'm just curious what's, what in your opinion is the right way to get involved in some of these things for anyone? Uh, First of all, and this goes to um, the white community, I have plenty of white friends and uh, even family. I didn't tell you that my adopted family, my godparents are white. Um, and they, they've loved on me since I was a boy. And they're, they're woke, they get it. But first and foremost, you have to get off the fence. This is not the time to try to play both sides. That doesn't mean that you have to be an enemy of the state. But what it does mean is that we have to position ourselves to be to stand on behalf of black lives right now. And I mean, I do mean black lives. This all lives matter stuff is um, it's an umbrella term. And it's yeah, it's bullshit. I don't know if I could cuss on you. Oh, yeah. But, we can, we can, okay. we can do that. <laughs> We're doing cussing. We're pretty okay, good at it. We, all the cussing we, you want. Yeah. Look, we have to re-record this whole thing. But yeah, get off the get off the yeah. fence and yeah. take a side. Neutrality is complicity. Mm-hmm. So get out there and first of all, do something. Follow uh, communities of color. There are great resources out there. The Movement for Black Lives is one of them. And there's other great resources out there. Um, look towards following uh, black leadership on these issues. Uh, don't be a white savior. Don't just jump ahead of the issue before you understand it. But once you have some degree of understanding, you don't have to wait a year or two to have all the understanding. Do something where you can. And one of the most important things that we can do, regardless of all the policy talk and all of that, and putting our bodies on the line in protest, is simply to have these conversations in our families. Now, this stuff is going to change um, relationally, as well as politically, as well as with systems of power in our society. But the one thing that we can control is our own reflections, you know, in what ways am I complicit? In what ways do we have to have those family talks when I'm at Thanksgiving and the families around the table? How many comments, how many racist comments have I ignored in those situations? Um, maybe my commitment is next time I speak up. So we do have to do a degree of education on these issues. I know it's new to a lot of people, 
but at the same time, um, take what you know and implement it, right? Like we have to have short cycles of I learn something and then I apply it and I learn something and apply it. There's uh, no way that you can make up for like 400 years of history in one day, but you can't take what you know and do something today. That is a useful thing to say out loud is like, you're not going to fix it just, but you got to make some progress, right? Again, it's not a thing you can fix on your own by following more black people on Twitter. It's not, that's not going to be enough. Right, right. Not enough, not enough. I, I like that, the, the perspective of like, it's not going to be enough. So get to work, you know, rather than, which thing should I choose to better, you know, to bestow my bounty of time and intellect on, right? It's not like that. It is not like that. And I, I don't, one thing that a lot of people, I, I'm, I'm impatient about, I'm way more impatient than you are. And I, I should really dial this back. But uh, the, the idea that uh, people are, want to do something, but they don't know what I think is based entirely on people being uncomfortable and not willing to push into their, just, just be uncomfortable. You had to lose yeah. a couple friends. It's not, you know, it, it is, if it's not worth that, then just get out immediately. Get out. Like that, that, that uncomfortableness is a thing you're going to have to get used to white friends. Get on with it. Get used to yeah. that. Like all of our comedy right now is based in taking things way too far and making it uncomfortable. And I hate that shit. Get used to this. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, anyway, ran, ran over for now. Word, you know? Yeah. <sighs> and, Anthony, we have driven most of this, you know, relatively poorly around a framework we normally have for guests here, and and it turned into something still pretty uh, helpful and interesting for for me at least, and I hope for for folks listening. But is there anything that we should be asking you about, or you want to talk about that we don't yeah. even know to address? About what specifically? What's going on in the world, or about anything going on? About so, something going on with you? Tell us, tell us a story. I don't know what's what's the what's the thing that would what be. Do you want to talk about? Do I get to make and a plug you, right now? Is that what you're? You go for it. Make a plug. Do whatever you'd like. <laughs> no, I won't. I won't make a plug. Um, but what, <laughs> no, what I'll say is that we're we're in an important time in history, and um, don't let the revolution pass you by. I think there's a a lot of great things happening right now in the world, and. I'm excited about the opportunity. This is the first time in collective history that I remember uh, Black Lives and these issues being so uh, risen to the surface on a mass scale. You have um, 18 countries, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. I think yesterday was the single biggest protest in world history. And that's amazing. So don't let this moment pass you by uh, because you don't know how to jump in. It's going to be uncomfortable, like Rachel said, but we don't grow without a degree of discomfort. You know, when you, when you are exercising a muscle in order for it to get bigger, it has to break down. And some of our muscles around these issues are weak, but the only way to strengthen them is to continue to practice and continue to come back to the table. You're going to mess it up. The key thing is, can I, can I, can I grow? Am I willing to grow? I saw Don Lemon on the streets of protest in Ferguson. He got ran out of Ferguson four or five years ago. I've seen this man today on the TV, on TV, speaking uh, important truth in a way that is very, very uh, much filled with integrity. And so like, I've, I've seen personal growth from him. Mm -hmm. And so um, to, to, to think that we're not gonna have to take those same steps to grow as people is, uh, is ridiculous. So just jump in and do something. 
this is this time's important. Excellent. Yeah. Um, all right, I have I have a couple more questions for you. This is going yeah. to be, you know, we're gonna we're gonna go back to uh, to some of the normal questions on our on our podcast. And so one is, when you're not working in all of this, and it's all probably all encompassing right now, and also in the, don't forget, there's also the pandemic. Uh, what are you doing to oh, to soothe yourself? What what are you doing? What are your hobbies in this time that are that are helping sustain you? I love to play sports. Um, I love to play basketball. I'm an active person. I hike anything that involves moving my body. Mm -hmm. um, I love to do. And then I'm a movie buff. I love to watch movies. I actually make movies. And really? that's my eventual dream. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a filmmaker. One of our movies just got into Tribeca Film Festival. Have to Whoa. plug that. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. The, the year I, that Tribeca got shut down of all things. But. The, year, the year I had my plans to go on the red carpet. I had my outfit set up and, you know, I was going to get on the plane and go and it got canceled. Oh, so that, that, was, that was that was a bummer. You picked out what you with were going to wear. Oh, man. <laughs> I am still I was with gonna, you. I was going to be clean. It was I was suited and booted. But uh, next yeah. year, that just gives next us year. inspiration for next year. But the film is Mr. Somebody. Um PJ Watts crip and that we uh, followed around for about two weeks and just made a, made a movie based off of his life. And it got some, it got some attention. So it's doing the, it's doing the rounds right now, but I like to make films and um, I don't know the last, the last couple of years I, I have a partner who I love and she's just been amazing. Um, have a family. And, and so we spend a lot of time at home Depot more time. <laughs> than I like to admit, like I'm doing the whole house thing, which is interesting. So that's the first time I've like had a house that I had to take care of. Uh, um, but yeah, just I'm a, I'm a normal. I do normal stuff when I'm not out there on the front lines and doing this and that. I like to I like to enjoy my space and my time at home with my family. Mm -hmm. I go out a lot less than I used to. Like used to go out dancing a lot more. And yeah, um, right now, it's not a thing. <laughs> That's not a thing with the pandemic. And then like, you know, when, when I, when I hit like mid thirties, I started getting tired at like 10 o'clock at night. So that, <laughs> Just was, you wait. that, was, that was new. <laughs> wait, there, it, get, it gets worse from here. Oh, dude, I, am a, I am ready for bed at nine 30. It is terrible. But then you get up at six 30. So, you know, it's all good. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I can't, I can't sleep past six 30 and I can't stay up past 11 right now. So yeah, that's not going to change. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, but and then oh, the last yeah. person. Oh, I love to travel too. I gotta sneak this in. So I, I I've been all, all over the world. I love to travel and um I can't wait till we get to travel again. Yeah. 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 The world is out there. Well, and then finally, where can people find you on the internet, Anthony? You can find my website at anthonygrimes.com mm -hmm. and I'm on social media at AntBuilder, A-N-T-B-U-I-L-D-E-R on most platforms. I'm not on the newer ones like TikTok and stuff yet, but maybe one day. All right. And we'll put that in the show so, notes. Yeah. And, and before we let you go, I do just want to say thanks for spending the time with us and talking about difficult things in a difficult time. You are overly patient with me in a lot of this, and I know that you are. So thank you for continuing to be overly patient with me. Um, yeah. And uh, we appreciate you having, having the time for us. Hey, thanks for having me, Rachel and Kendall. Appreciate you. Thanks.